Hello, all you wonderful listeners. This is Julie Baumgartner, and welcome to another episode of Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner, where we talk with specialists in their field of expertise to encourage, motivate, and equip those with big dreams to rise up and achieve their goals. Our guests bring valuable tips and resources to apply to your own life and go forward on your path to success. Our guests have a following either because of their expertise, have given back and invested in their communities, or have engaged in relationship building, contributing to their success. Today on Rise Up, we have a renowned blogger, spiritual leader, counselor, and author of several books. His focus is most often on building loving families and strong marriages. He recently released a new book, Fearless Families. Today, we welcome Kevin Thompson. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. You wrote that this is not a parenting book, not a marriage book, not a book about leadership, business, or coaching, but rather about two homes, one ruled by fear and one defined by love. Why did you write this book? Yeah, so Fearless Families for me, obviously it relates to parenting, it relates to business, to leadership, to the pastorate, the church for me as far as mm-hmm. I go, but but primarily it, it comes down to this basic concept that fear has always ruled my life at a much greater level than I think I ever realized. And, and, and not only that, I, I think one thing that I've learned in the pastorate now over 20 years is that everybody else is just like me. And so whenever we look at, at even Jesus, you know, the, some of the very first words he spoke after the resurrection was, do not be afraid. And you look back and those are some of the most repeated commands that he gave. Matter of fact, some would say that, that do not be afraid is the number one command given in Scripture, said 365 to 385 times. Well, why is that? It's because fear rules us. But it does so in ways that I think we don't even begin to imagine. And so what happened behind Fearless Families is we begin to see my son experience and exhibit some elements of anxiety. And as he began to display that, I noticed between my wife and I that his anxiety was causing us to be anxious. And and I began to explore that concept of what does our fear do to others? Well, it makes them afraid and makes them uncomfortable. It's almost like you know the old line: whenever you whenever you see a new dog, don't act afraid because they can sense your fear. Well, I think we can all sense each other's fears in, in many ways. And what we begin to realize as Silas was kind of working through his issues, and we were trying to parent him the best we could, is that our home was becoming more and more afraid. And then I looked at how that's true with homes, it's true with churches, it's true with businesses, with with friend groups, all those kinds of things. And I just thought there has to be a better way than this. And what is the better way? And as you look at the words of Jesus, you look at Scripture, the better way is love. Because truly, those are our two options. We can either act out of fear or we can act out of love, but we can never act out of both. And so Fearless Families is now an invitation, first, for us to see the home of the afraid, to see how fear is ruling us. And whenever we lean toward fear, what are the things that we kind of go toward? And I talk about the idea of safety, of of appearances, of materialism, of power. And yet whenever we replace that fear with love, then what what do our behaviors begin to entail? Well, it's trust, it's heart, it's relationship, it's submission in, in the concept of relationship. And so Fearless Families is now an invitation for parents, 
for marriages, for churches, for nonprofits, for businesses, for teams, to, to recognize the fear within their own lives and to choose a better way, and that better way is love. I think one thing that stood out in your introduction in the book and your sharing your personal experience is that it, it took a little while. I mean, your home did struggle under anxiety, and then there was like this defining moment where it was like, oh, wait, this we are reacting in a fearful manner. So that would not be untypical for another family to think, oh, we're just, we're fine and, and we're operating and not have that defining moment. So I hope that the listeners, if if they need that defining moment, I hope it comes during this podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. And for, for us, what it was mm-hmm. in many ways, we're, mm-hmm. we're in the midst of my son exhibiting these things. And for him, it expressed itself with an anxiety towards school. So straight A student, uh, a loved child, not bullied, not any, there, there were no external reasons why it appeared as though uh, he should be suffering the way he was. And once he got to school, he was he was happy and, and successful. It was just getting him there. And we began to learn and research that school refusal uh, hits 1% to 2% of all kids, primarily boys, primarily those who are pretty gifted and smart, those who are aware of what's going on, and also primarily at the age in which he was of upper elementary school. And so just one particular morning, as we're trying to work through these issues, one particular morning, he was very anxious. I could feel the anxiety rising within me. And my wife just said something that I was looking, and so that's an important thing. It wasn't just out of the blue and it happened. Mm -hmm. No, I was looking for what's going on here. And she just made the statement and looking at him, look, I know you're afraid. It's okay to be afraid, but your dad and I are not going to be ruled by that fear. We're going to love you no matter what you think about it. And it was almost like later, almost kind of like what the disciples would do with Jesus, of later they would go, oh, that was it. That was that was what was happening. <laughs> and so it was with us. And looking back at that moment, kind of going, oh, that's it. That's the lens through which we do everything. Now, it does not make everything easy, and it doesn't make parenting easy or marriage easy. Mm-hmm. And this isn't, you know, a lot of people say about their book, it's a game changer. This is not a game changer. Mm-hmm. It's just not. I think it's an eye-opener. No, that's exactly right. And I think what that statement gave us was it did, it did simplify things. It didn't make them easy, but it simplified them. That, that in the end, we just have to make the most loving decision possible with our son, with our daughter. And, but think about that. That applies to everything. Mm-hmm. In the, whatever the moment is, what's the most loving decision possible in that moment? And not instead, I'm afraid what's going to lead me to safety or what's going to lead me to somebody else respecting my opinion or something like that. And so it was a defining moment for us, but I don't want to give your listener the concept that it was this aha moment that forever changed everything. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, we're all great. Mm-hmm. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It is, in looking back, that was a defining moment of, all right, here's how we operate. Because mm-hmm. we were at a place where we really didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how to help him. We didn't know how to help ourselves. And and that's what fear does. I think fear paralyzes us in many ways in, in which we see all the negative possible outcomes, and, and it begins to close off the path of how do we move forward. Whereas love, no matter the circumstance, love always shows you the next step. It doesn't show you the next 10 steps, but it always shows you the next step, which then empowers you to take the next one as well. So we, we are talking about fear define fear? So, so that's a great question. I should do that in the book at some point, right? <laughs> and so I think fear is a, a fixation on self 
and a concern about negative impact on ourselves. And so I think that's what the real problem with fear is. Why is it that Jesus kept on coming back to this phrase, do not be afraid? Why is it we see it so often in Scripture? There, there is something about fear that keeps us from living the life that Christ wants us to live and keeps us from being who, who Jesus wants us to be. What is that? Well, I think primarily it's the concept that fear turns us inward. I cannot love you well if I'm fearful, feel, fearful for myself. So fear fixates on self and on potential negative impacts, outcomes that we don't desire, things that we don't like, things that are going to make us feel uh, uneasy, vulnerable in many ways. And so fear is a fixation on self. And what Jesus is inviting us to do, I think, is it's okay to feel that, but then to look beyond ourselves and make our decisions based on what's better and what's best for other people. And that's where we're going to find life and meaning and satisfaction and value and purpose. Now, and so fear ultimately is a fixation on self out of concern of negative impact. How does the need for safety work with each other or against each other? Yeah, well, I, th- I think, you know, safety, so often we, we assume that whenever we uh, feel safe, our fears will go away. That's the assumption. That's why I say the modern family is built on the foundation of safety, the number one concept is if I can get my children to be safe, if I can feel safe, my wife to feel safe, if we can feel safe, then at least we won't feel our fears nearly as much. And yet one thing I say in the opening chapter is if you look at it, that that is a bargain that has not worked out, that we literally live in one of the safest times ever, and yet we also live in the most anxious generation mm-hmm. of all time. I talk about in the book, the, the even the things like death rates, mm-hmm. things like child abduction, those kind of things are, are so much less now than they were 30 years ago when I was a child. And, and yet, my parents didn't think much about it back then when it was a greater likelihood, still not a major one, but was a greater likelihood. And, and yet, parents today think about it uh, all the time. I tell the story in the book about the design of our church, our uh, preschool wing. Whenever we built that building 20 years ago, the number one concern was fire. And so literally down the hallway of the, the preschool wing, the very first room are the smallest babies. That way, if there's smoke, if there's fire, we could carry them outside. It would be a short walk. Uh, well, now parents come into that hallway. They come in from the outside. The very first room are these infants. And, and moms begin to get very nervous because their thought is the greatest threat to my child here in this moment is child abduction. And, and how can you put my, my, my infant so close to a door where a stranger could just walk in from the outside and steal them? Well, okay, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an understandable concern. But if you look at the, the risk of a stranger walking into a building on a Sunday morning and stealing a child. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's ever happened. Now, there there's family situations and and marriages that have gone bad and where one parent doesn't have custody rights and that might might happen. But the idea of a of a stranger walking in and stealing a child is very low on the possibility. Yes. Fire is still far far greater. And yet that's not the mindset of the parents. We're, we're literally having to rearrange and redesign our building because parents won't attend when their children are right there. Well, that, that is not a, a feeling based on a growing statistic. It's just an emotion that's going on. I, I won't get the exact statistic right, but it was something to the extent of that child abduction rates had dropped like 60% during the 90s, and yet stories of them had increased 600 percent. 
And so we're daily being bombarded with these images and these mm-hmm. stories of all these things that could go wrong, which is creating with, within us a tremendous anxiety to where we're spending a good amount of time making decisions based on things that, from a percentage standpoint, aren't very likely. Mm-hmm. And yet that's creating an anxiety within us. Mm-hmm. And I think it was already increasing in the 90s. And then I think when 9-11 happened and uh, we watched the tragedy, I think it greatly changed the next generation of parents to where we are probably, my generation is probably the first generation of parents to ever try to hold their children back from what they believe to be a darker future. As far as Americans go, every generation before us has been pushing our children into a brighter future, a better future, and we might be the first set of parents trying to hold our kids back uh, from a darker future, and that comes with some very negative consequences. I don't think it's any accident uh, that in a society that's being bombarded with all these negative images, that literally in my pocket right now, there is a gateway uh, to any negative story I can ever imagine anywhere in the world, that the result is in part... We, we live in the most anxious generation uh, of all time, and it just simply doesn't have to be that way. You make a good point in your book about the 24-7 news that's available, the, the Twitter wars and the Facebook fights, and we almost invite that negativity into our life by the amount of time that, that we spend watching news that is not excellent to hear. So what would you advise as far as pushing back from that to resolve some fear-based issues? Yeah, discipline is what I would advise as far as that goes. You, you think about it, we are, we are allowing these negative voices and images in our head in a nonstop kind of manner. And I think anybody that would step back from that and look at that would go, this is simply not healthy. And instead, I mean, you, you think about Paul in Philippians, what does he say? If there's anything good, if there's anything noble, if there's anything right, if there's anything just, think on these things. Literally fixate on these things. But what do we do? We fixate on the negativity. We fixate on all the bad stories. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to be aware. We do, and we need to have compassion and grace and and be involved in justice and all these issues, no doubt. But literally, I kind of like the phrase that that I read the other day about the idea of doom scrolling, that that's what a majority of people do whenever they first wake up. They grab their phone, and they start scrolling through Twitter or Facebook. And, And literally, these companies are working to get your attention, and they know that negative stories get your attention far more than positive stories. And so they are literally, they have algorithms that are literally created to target you. And I'm not blaming them. This is capitalism. This is what they're doing, right? But they are literally targeting you and I to figure out what is going to rise the most negative emotion within you, knowing that the negative emotion is going to create a dopamine hit within your brain. It's going to cause you to keep on scrolling, keep on engaging in their platform so that they can sell more advertising. I think we need to understand how we're being used in many ways as far as that goes and to have a discipline about it to say, okay, I am going to be educated, but what's the best way for me to receive the news? You know, for my grandparents, it was very simple. They got the morning newspaper and they watched the the six o'clock news. That was it. That's all they had. And, and the reading of the newspaper, reading tends to be, in news stories and newspapers, it tends to be a little bit more balanced kind of writing than what you're going to get on social media. And then the 30 minutes of the news at night, and that's all they had. 
we are literally bombarded with it at every moment. And if we don't have some boundaries in our lives to cut some of those things out, to then put the positive mindsets and images back in our heads, then we're going to suffer the consequences of that. And, and I think that's what's going on uh, in many ways, is we're suffering the consequences of, of an undisciplined life. And I'm not saying any person out there that feels anxiety is undisciplined. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that if you begin to see how fear is ruling your life, you'll have to start doing some things about it. And, and that's probably the, the first thing is what are the boundaries that you're going to have and then what does that look like? I, I know even even in this past year, a very contentious election in what's going on. And, and generally, the, the habit of my wife is at, and me is after dinner, as our kids kind of go their own ways. I have teenagers around, so they kind of go their own way. Jenny and I would both pull out our laptops. We would be on the couch. The TV would be on. We would both be working. I'd be writing. She'd be working on her business. She has an advertising business. And it would be on the news. And for whatever reason, one night... We changed it off the news onto reruns of, of Family Feud, right? I mean, just pointless, Steve Harvey's hilarious, mm-hmm. but pointless viewing, right? And after we did that for a couple of weeks, we saw a difference. We weren't less educated. We still knew what was going on. I get a morning email. I, I know the news of what's going on in the day, but I'm not fixating on it every single moment of the day. And we honestly felt a difference in our lives with that one minor change. And so I think we all need to look at our social media intake, our news intake, look at the, the voices we're allowing in our heads and to know that they are shaping us. And so what are we going to be shaped by? And as a pastor, I think one thing that grieves my heart is that far more of my congregants are being shaped by Fox News or CNN or MSNBC than by Scripture. They're being discipled. Um, by these news outlets or by Twitter or by Facebook, and, and that, that gets you into a scary place. You had a good sentence in your book that we have exchanged complete peace for unending concern. Hmm. That is good. I didn't know I wrote that. You did. <laughs> you did that. But, there, but there's, there's no question about that, because I think that's the thing about— and I'm Because not, it is a trade-off. It is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not anti-social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, by any means, it's, it's empowered me to write mm-hmm. books. I yeah. mean, that's the only way it would have happened. And, and yet, I, I think what's happening now is anytime something gets started, it, it has a purpose and a meaning and a value that's there. But, but humanity is humanity, and then the, the bad actors come in and begin to use it in negative ways toward us, and we don't realize what's going on. I think what's happening now in 2021 is our eyes are being opened to the reality of, okay, here are the negative consequences of this. Now what are we going to do about it? And I think that's probably where we are. Your book is divided in, into two sections is the first part so that to help you realize and understand how you might be operating in fear, and then the second part, how to get out of that? Absolutely. So, so I talk about in the, in the book, section number one mm-hmm. is called The Home of the Afraid. Mm-hmm. And, and it begins to show, all right, here's what fear looks like in our lives. Here's the negative side of it. And whenever we lean on fear, here are the four things we tend to prioritize. It is the concept of it. So I, I, it's, it's like a... It's like a really bad drawing. Like, I can't draw worth a flip. So it's like a second-grade drawing. So just to Im- imagine a 2D house, right? So the, the bottom floor is the foundation. That's the concept of safety. And then you have the roof of appearances and then the walls of materialism and power. And when fear rules us, 
those are the four things we tend to lean toward. And then, and so basically what I'm saying in, in section one is here's where we are. This is the reality mm-hmm. of, of who we are right now. And you think about it. What defines American society better mm-hmm. than that? Mm-hmm. The idea of we're obsessed with safety, with appearances, projecting a strength, mm-hmm. whether we have it or not. We're concerned about what other people think about us and being successful. We care far more about material material things than we do people. And we love, we crave power. That defines who we are and where we are. And then the second half of the book, I say, okay, it doesn't take long for me to explain why the first half is not what we want to be. So what is the the life that Jesus is inviting us into? And so what what does a home filled with love look like? And so I call that the home of the brave, because it really is, and, and where I end the book in, in chapter 11 is an invitation to courage, because I, I, I don't claim that this is easy. To, to feel fear and then to choose love that is a courageous choice, and that's what I'm calling on people to do here. I'm not. Whenever I say fearless families, I'm not saying that you can truly be fearless. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you don't. You and I don't have to make decisions based on fear. So we can feel it, and, and then we can choose a different way. And in the second half of the book, uh, in the home of the brave, it is the concept of now. What does that look like? If we choose love, what's it going to look like? And it's going to look like a foundation of trust. Trust in God, trust in one another, trust in others. Instead of a roof of appearances, a projection of what we want to be, it's going to be a concept of of heart, of truth, of character. And then instead of leaning on materialism, we're going to lean on relationships with actual people instead of of things. And then instead of power and a closed fist and strength, we're going to open our hands to submission in the midst of love and relationships. And and those are courageous actions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm calling us from the home of the afraid into the home of the brave. Let's circle back to the first part of the, of the book, and let's break down kind of those those four illustrations. One of the things I love is that you pose questions like at the end of each um, chapter to the readers to help them kind of look more inside themselves and, and assess their situation. But you also had a, a fill-in-the-blank quote, if I love and or pursue blank, I will be safe or successful, or happy. What are some examples of how people might fill in that blank? Yeah, we think, we, well, we think to ourselves, if, if I get the promotion, if I could get this job title, uh, if my bank account could ever have this number in it, if I could ever be famous, if I could ever get this relationship, uh, a lot of people think, if, if I could just get married, or if I could just have a child, or, or if I could just get, get my marriage where it is happy, something like that. And in, in a career standpoint, we think to ourselves, if we could just get to a certain level of power, of, of influence, then, then we're going to feel safe. And that's going to lead to a lessening of our fears. But the reality is we look at people who have those things and are not, they're not necessarily less afraid. And, and so we, we've all written lies in our heads that we're believing, that if I get blank, I'll be okay. And, and a lot of times what we feel fill in the blank is something other than God. Therefore, it becomes an idol which does not lead to the outcome that we desire. It is, it is promising something it cannot produce. I've heard that that fill-in-the-blank question asked, but people will end it with, then I will be happy, mm-hmm. instead of, and then I will be safe. And I don't think they make the connection that it is the safety that they are desiring, that that safety they equate with with 
happiness. Yeah, but in many ways in, in American society specifically, the, we use those words almost interchangeably. We just don't realize it. We have come to the wrong conclusion that, that safety will lead to happiness. It's what we think it will do. But it's interesting to me that, that that's not a concept that Jesus ever ever said. And even whenever we begin to think about it, it's not something that we necessarily believe in the lives of other people. We don't think that necessarily, we don't always want our children to play it safe. Not always. We want them to have courage to risk. And yet we don't do that in our own lives. And so I, I think deep down, we do understand that safety doesn't necessarily lead to happiness, but in the moment we keep on coming back to that reality. And so it becomes very difficult for us to give up patterns of behavior, of actions, of mindsets, to truly take risk, which could lead to our happiness. But in the moment, it's it's just too risky. And so we 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 just continually lean back on that concept of safety. What? So if you're a parent, and this could kind of probably tie into the appearances, but why do parents not? encourage more risk from their children? What are some of the underlying anxieties that they may have as far as keeping up appearances? And can you go into that yeah, a little bit? I, th- I, think there's, I think there's a variety of things at play. I think in part, many of us are unknowingly living our lives through our children. And, and so we get our identity from them. So when they're successful, we feel like we've been successful. But the downside of that is when they fail, we feel like it's our fault as though we have that ultimate control over their lives. And so we don't. We oftentimes don't recognize or, or don't appreciate their own humanity and their ability to make their own choices and their own decisions. And, and, and even from a, from a public projection kind of standpoint, I use the illustration in the book of you're in the grocery line checkout, your kid's there throwing a fit. In that moment, the most loving thing toward your child is to not reward that behavior. And yet to do so, all the people around you are going to be looking at you. And so which do you love more? Do you love the idea that all these people around you see you as a good parent or at least don't see you as a bad one? Or do you love your child more and what they need in the moment? And no matter what these people around me are going to say, I'm not going to reward this behavior right now. Even if if it's irritating everybody else, even if they're judging me of and people are saying, well, my kid would never do that and those kind of things. No, I'm going to do the most loving thing toward you right now and, and not really care about what these people think. That's easy to say, but that's really difficult in the moment. And, and even beyond that, the idea of, you know what, who do you love more in that moment, yourself or them? Because sometimes in that moment, I'm just tired. I don't want to deal with it. I'd rather appease you in this moment so I don't have to put up with it. Well, am I loving myself more in that moment? And really what is best for the heart of my child? And so that would be one example of, of what that looks like. And then I think, I think beyond that, I think we have our own wounds from our own childhood. And we know what it's like in, in the cafeteria when we're sitting alone. We know what it's like in junior high to be made fun of. We, we know the uncomfortableness of not having a date for, for whatever is the big event in high school. And so often we want to rescue our children from that. And I think it's one of the most difficult things as a parent. So I have a child. My daughter has Down syndrome, and she's 15, and then my son is 12, about to be 13, right? And so you parent those two situations in radically different ways. Ella, in all likelihood, will forever be with us to some extent. And so it's not this idea of we're building up this strong person into a young adult to launch them out. 
It is we want her to be as happy and as healthy as she can possibly be, but chances are she'll always be with us. Whereas our son, chances are we want him to launch eventually. And so you parent those in different ways. And one of the greatest struggles I have with my daughter specifically is what situations do I save her from and what situations do I walk her through? But that's not saved just for her. That's every parent. We struggle with that. How do we handle that? And I think part of what Fearless Families does is begin to give us a lens through which to view those situations and those circumstances. It doesn't give us a pat answer, but it does assist us to begin to say, you know what, what feels safe in the moment is not necessarily the best thing. How can we best build trust? Trust in God, trust in one another. How can I show my child that I trust them, that they're going to experience negative things, and they're going to make bad choices at times, but I'm going to be there to love them and support them and to help them in the midst of those moments? And so I think in many ways, one aspect of, of the reason that we maybe hover over our children is we're trying to save them from some of the things that we went through. And sometimes that's a good decision, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're actually hindering their growth because what's best for them in the moment is not to make the team or to sit on the bench. And it's not for us to come in and to pull them off the team or to talk to the coach. It's literally to help them begin to see, hey, this is life. And if you want it, fight for it. And if you don't like the outcome you're getting, work harder. But also don't get your identity from these kind of kind of things. But as, as parents, we tend to avoid those type of situations and just try to rescue our children so that they won't won't experience the negative things that maybe we experience at times. You went into the well-known phrase, an, an emotionally threatened response is fight or flight. But you added something interesting, which was freeze. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and the, and the latest research is that. And actually, some, some, some of the psychologists now add a fourth thing. It's the idea of collapse. But where I first saw freeze, for me, that, that I didn't realize it, it was there, is years ago we had a major hailstorm here uh, in our hometown. And so our, our living room is open ceiling, and there's skylights that are there. And so we'd always been warned that, that my daughter with Down syndrome, that in, in emergency situations— she may not respond the way you and I would respond. And so her, her critical thinking is going to be delayed. It's going, to, it's going to take her a little bit longer to process. And so normally that's fine. You just have to give her time to process. But in times of emergency, she may not be afforded at that time. We might have to do something, right? So major, major hailstorm comes through. It's a horrible sound that you're hearing, right? And I remember looking outside and realizing, okay, that's hail. We're okay. We're inside. That's okay. Except... You don't need to be in the living room where there are skylights. And so I see that Ella is just there, kind of standing there, and I, and I loudly encourage her to move, and she's not moving. And, and finally, I kind of run in and sweep her up and get her out. And, and I realized in that moment she was overwhelmed with what was going on. And where most of us would run, she froze. And, and that is a response that some people have to extreme stress. And so we can all fight. If, if we're attacked, we might fight in the moment. We can all flee. We can run. But some of us freeze, almost like we have a rabbit that lives in our backyard, and it's out there eating the grass. If I tap on the window, it'll just freeze. It'll try to pretend like, all right, if I just sit here and, and perfectly still, the threat will go away. They won't see me. That's sometimes what we think. And as I looked at emotionally how we respond to things, I realized how often, how present that is within our own lives, that sometimes we fight, 
Sometimes we flee. A lot of times we freeze. How does love conquer that? Well, I think that I think that love cho- shows us a different way. Because here's the thing: fight, flight, freeze, collapse. Th- that's not a bad thing. That is a God-given, implanted concept within who we are to protect us. Ultimately, I think it was placed within us for back whenever we used to, you know, our ancestors used to live out on the prairie, and in the distance there could be a predator that's stalking, that's coming through. And our brains just very naturally take in all that information, and we know in the moment what is the best thing to do. That if we can if we can get away from the predator, we'll try to get away. If we can't, if we have to fight it, we'll fight it. But if we can just stand still, then maybe it won't see us and maybe it will move on. So fight, flight, and freeze is a tremendous gift when our lives are in danger. It is a horrible reality when my wife says something that feels threatening to my heart. Now, in that moment, if I'm not careful, my God-given protective response to my physical well-being kicks in, and I begin to treat my wife like a predator. And so instead of leaning into what she has said, instead of putting down my defenses, laying my heart out on the table, listening in a loving, compassionate way, and and she and I now communicating in this beautiful dance in which we figure out what one another is feeling and to move forward, uh, instead, I fight, I flee, or I freeze. And none of those three are good responses in that moment. When Jenny says, hey, we need to talk. It is not good in that moment for me to run out of the room. It is not good in that moment for me to pretend like I didn't hear her. And it's not good in that moment for me to raise my voice and begin to fight back. And yet, in many homes, you look, and that is the response. And I think what's scary to me is what we don't realize is that we are kicking into this God-ordained physical response and yet we're applying it in the wrong area. Those are great responses if somebody is breaking into my house. That's exactly what I need to do. There might be times, if somebody's breaking my house, there might be times in which laying in my bed being totally still is the right response. There might be other times in which sneaking out the back door is the right response. might be other times I need to take the baseball bat or the gun and go confront. Totally the right response. The total wrong response when my son has made a mistake, when my wife says we need to talk, when my coworker doesn't like a decision that I've made. In those moments, I need to not feel threatened. And yet when safety is our ultimate idol, then anything that makes me feel vulnerable is wrong. And so if I'm not careful, I can begin to kick into fight, flight, or freeze. And most of us never even realize what we're doing. I have couples sit in my office, and I might ask them, hey, tell me about a recent conflict. How did that go? And they'll begin to talk, and I'll begin to hear it. That's fight. That's flight. That's freeze right there. A horrible right response in other circumstances, but a horrible response in the emotional realities of our lives. What is the connection between fear and what we value? Well, I, I think I think ultimately we value ourselves maybe mm-hmm. more <laughs> maybe more than anything, mm-hmm. and, and fear is, is the is the concern that we're going to lose those things, and, and so I think if we're not very careful, whenever we value the wrong things and we're we're fearful that we're going to lose those things or, or 
that there's a threat to those things, that leads to wrong attitudes and it also leads to wrong actions. And yet whenever our values are right, and, and I think what's scary for many of us, one of the things that that I did with, with Fearless Families is, is if you go to my website, kevinathompson.com slash fearlessfamilies, if you buy the book and put in your email, I will give you a free gift, and I call it a family values scripter. And it is, it's a process that Jenny and I went through to just begin to communicate what is it that we value? What are the things that are going to define our family? And we ended up coming up with, with five basic things. The, the first is that love decides. In our family, love is going to be the decision maker of, uh, of what's going on. Second is that family is bigger than us. It's not just about us. It's about God. It's about others. As God blesses us, we want to bring others along with us. It means as our kids grow up, if they have friends, if, you know, if a girlfriend comes along, if a wife comes along, it means our family is going to expand and we're open to that. It means there's always seat at our dinner table because family is bigger than us. The, the, the third one is the concept that we're going to avoid the two L's. We're not going to lie and we're not going to be lazy. And, and that is just a value of what our home is about. The, the fourth one is that we're going to respect fully meaning that we're going to live respectable lives. It influences what we'll click on on the internet. It influences what we'll watch on TV. But then we're going to respect one another. We're going to show that and give that uh, to one another. And then the, the, the fifth one is that we're going to celebrate courage. We're not going to celebrate success. It's not wins and losses. It's courage. It's whenever you have the courage to compete, whenever you have the courage to step outside of your comfort zone, that we're going to celebrate those things. And so Jenny and I define those five things, and there's others that we could add in, but, but we've limited it down to these five. And then we begin to teach these to our kids, and to such an extent that literally if Ella or Silas were here right now and I would say, hey, what are the Thompson family values, they would roll their eyes and then they would list off perfectly those five things. It, it means whenever a discipline issue comes up, we only discipline on these five things. That's just it. Nothing else. And, and so when, when something happens, if you're not being respectful— that gets discipline. And we'll ask, all right, why are you being, why are you facing this negative consequence? And they have to tie it back into one of these five things, right? I think the problem with many families, many marriages, many businesses, many churches, we haven't clarified what we value. And so if we haven't clarified what we value, what do we value? Well, we tend to value things that other people have taught us, have shown us, or we think that we need to value. I think that's why many of us overvalue money. It's why we overvalue power. It's why we just assume that we want the promotion. Maybe we don't. Maybe that would actually be a bad thing for our family. We think that we want to win the lottery, and yet there's a long history that shows that'd be horrible. Try me. Yeah. No, I know, but it would, that it would be horrible, you know? <laughs> and so I think whenever we fail to list our values, to define our values, we end up valuing just things by accident. And so, and, or, or what society has has taught us to value? Oh, absolutely. And, and then we become we become fearful that we're going to lose these things that actually aren't adding to our life, and we shouldn't be valuing from the get go. And so, I would really encourage your listener go to kevinathompson.com/slash/fearlessfamilies and pick up that family value scripture, and literally in a couple of hours, you, your family, whoever, you as an individual can work through it. And you can get down to say, you know what, for me, these are the three, five, six, seven things that we're really going to focus in on. And if you'll do that, it will so simplify 
your parenting, your marriage, your your business, your the decisions that you're making, it will give you a framework by which you can make those decisions. But but far too often, we've never clarified our values, which I think the lack of clarity actually leads to fear. We don't have a direction forward, so we're afraid we're going to make the wrong step because we don't know what step we need to make. What are the connections between fear and hiding? Well, I mean, this goes back into into our our forefathers and mothers and, and just what happened. I mean, Adam and Eve are told not to take of the fruit. They do, and the very first thing they do is they hide as God's walking through the garden. Now you think about that. What should they have done? Us knowing the character and the nature of God, know that they could have come to God and said, here's what we did. Help us. Forgive us. How can we make this right? Notice, notice what that requires in that moment, trust. They need to trust the heart of God to, to bring their heart and their actions to God and say, here's what we did. But they didn't trust him. And so because trust was lacking, what did they do? They hid, thinking, fight, flight, or freeze, right? They froze. They, they fled and then froze, thinking God won't see us. And the byproduct of that is the broken relationship between them and God, even though God already knew what had happened in so many ways. And I think that for us becomes a metaphor of what we do. Without trust, what we do is we emotionally hide. We do not reveal our hearts. I mean, think about how often your spouse or somebody has said, you know, you'll be like, ah, I think something's wrong. And your friend will say, oh, I'm fine. Really? You're fine? You're really not. What are you doing in that moment? You're hiding. Emotionally, you're not willing to reveal the pain and to put it out on the table and to deal with it. There's an emotional hiding that's going on. When, when a husband raises his voice in the midst of a, of a contentious kind of discussion, what you're actually doing in that moment is hiding. Fear is saying, don't have this discussion. Don't have an adult conversation with this other person because you're, you're going to feel vulnerable in that moment. You might have to admit that you're wrong. You might have to admit that you, you hurt. You might have to admit that you have hurt or that you have been wrong. And so raise your voice to, to intimidate the other person so the conversation won't go away or emotionally shut down so you won't have the conversation. And in so doing, what you're actually doing is hiding your heart, and hiding always has negative consequences. You also make a connection between appearances, fear, and debt. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> I think debt in, in so many ways is a great Western way to, to project an appearance that isn't reality. And and so it's no longer necessary for me to to earn a wage in order to purchase a product, somebody will give me the money and, and I can I can put it on the credit card. We look at this from an individual standpoint. We look at this from a family standpoint. We look at this from a national standpoint. You know, in the in the town in which you and I are, are at today, we're right in the middle of, of the, a big government stimulus. Checks are coming out and the main thoroughfare through town, you can't get down. I tried to go down a while ago and I couldn't. I had to turn around and go the other way. Why? Because there are all these stores on this main road and all these people have this money all of a sudden and what they're doing in that moment is in the midst of so much the pain that has come with with covid and a year of isolation just for a moment they get the sense of relief that i can buy this thing but so often what's i think what's so sad is they might have gotten a fourteen hundred dollar check but they're going to spend two thousand and 600 of it, they don't have in their bank account. It's going to go on a credit card. 
and they're going to project well-being that simply does not fit reality. And, and there's going to be a consequence of that down the road. And so the, one of the, the shocking stats that I have in the book is the idea that for the average widow that, that gets life insurance when her husband dies, the average person spends that within the first six months. What is, what is meant to help sustain them, to, to give a little bit of a foundation in the years to come, a small supplement is spent in six months. Well, why is that? In most cases, it's because of grief. They are in so much pain, they're looking for anything to satisfy. And they tend to turn to material things because of the pain that's going on. And that that leads now to to further debt. Think about it. If you didn't care what your neighbors thought, if you felt no competition whatsoever with your coworker at, at, at work, if you didn't care what they drove, how much different would it be? One of my favorite books I've ever read was The Millionaire Next Door. and I, It was probably 20 years ago when I read it. And one thing it talked about is that if you buy into a neighborhood, most people think, can I afford that house? What they don't realize is you need to ask, can I afford that lifestyle? Because as you move into that neighborhood and you're in your neighbor's house, suddenly you want furniture as nice as what they have. You see them driving a car. You want a car that's kind of like what they have. Chances are whatever neighborhood you live in, your car is kind of like your neighbor's car. Your furniture is kind of like your neighbor's furniture. Well, the reality is it's just the concept of who we are. We tend to match with those that, that we're around. But the danger of that is if we're not making the income, so much of that comes from debt. So we can project, we can give the appearance that I'm your peer, that I'm your equal. And, and it comes at a great cost to us, I think, emotionally and, and relationally. Think about how many marriages are hindered under the weight of debt. Equality, us desiring equality is, well, I mean, that's a big topic right now. But where, where do you think that stems from? Yeah, well, I think, I think from a national concept, whenever we're talking about justice and equality mm-hmm. and equity, mm-hmm. I think those are great conversations to have. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think there, there is a concept here that we live in a society that's full of injustice. We live in a society that's full of biases and things like that. And so, so I think within that is just a God-given concept of we've all been created in the image of God, mm-hmm. and therefore we are all equal. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of I need to look like my neighbors mm-hmm. comes from a radically different spot. I think that comes from a concept of if I stick out, I'm vulnerable. So my daughter walks in the room. She has Down syndrome. You can see it on her face. Immediately, she looks a little bit different than the rest of us, and she is keenly aware of that, and others are aware of that. And like it or not, in times of threat and times of danger, the different is the one that is expendable. And so I think we take that into our neighborhoods and unknowingly we think to ourselves, if, if we can match what's around us, we'll be safer that way. That if we drive the bad car in the good neighborhood, we're going to stand out and people are going to look down on us as lesser. Therefore, we might become expendable in some way. If, we, if, our, if our yard isn't as nice as our neighbor's yards, they're going to look down on us. And, and there, there is safety in the midst of the community, we think. And, and that there's truth to that. There is some safety in the midst of the community. But that needs to be built on relationship, not on these outward signs that we're trying to project. And yet I think unknowingly we write the, the wrong story, the false story mm-hmm. about that. So how do we not feel that way? Yeah, I think we recognize it first. Mm-hmm. I think we begin to ask the question, all right, what am I doing here? 
there's nothing wrong with buying a new car. Buy a new car. Who cares? What am I buying it for? Whom am I buying it for? Do I need this new car or not? Do I have the money to pay for it uh, or not? I think to just have some basic financial principles here of, you know what? The income that I have, I have, I have one of two choices in my mind. That either I can live within the financial boundaries of my current income or I can find a way to make more. Those should be my only two primary concepts. I think the problem with most Western families is we can finance all of this and we can try to live a lifestyle that doesn't actually match the wage that we're earning in this moment and a great deal of danger comes in. So I think I think to recognize the human tendency to value material things and appearances over what really matters of truth and relationship. Uh, I, I think having boundaries within our own lives, and sometimes this takes professional help to assist us, for, for somebody on the outside to say, no, that's, that's foolish. You shouldn't do that. So financial advisors, counselors, pastors, friends that, that we can be honest with and, and run things by. I have a board at, at the, the, the church that, that we work for, and you know what? I have to justify expenses to them. Well, just that process is helpful. I, I, it, doesn't, it saves me from the temptation of immediate spending and, and things like that. And, and then number three, I think, is just a basic reflection on, okay, where is my identity coming from? And am I valuing the right things? And then one thing I, I often think about is, am I living in comparison to people that make the same amount of money as Jenny and I make, is my st- lifestyle the same, better, or less? It needs to be less, in my opinion, because it, if I'm getting my value and identity from Christ and not from material things, if her and I have a healthy and good relationship and, and we find satisfaction in one another, if we're trying to, to love each other and our, our kids well and not project this great deal of success, then I shouldn't be as tempted toward some of these things that some of my friends might be or, or some things they might be projecting. And so it doesn't mean that we can't, in some context, live lavishly, but it does mean, all right, if, if I didn't know Jesus, if I wasn't growing in maturity, if we weren't having a good marriage, what would be the things I'd be tempted for and toward? I shouldn't be tempted toward those things. And so to reflect on those questions, I think, is a useful process. This concludes Part 1, Becoming Fearless. In this episode, we took a deep dive into identifying fear and asked questions to assist in determining if we are living in fear. Next week, in Part 2, Becoming Fearless, we will discuss tools and give resources to live free, live fearlessly, and live in love that conquers all. Be sure to subscribe. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be and listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you.